You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. Not just physical pleasures, but any strong desire on the inside that we have. Lust for power, it could include. Lust for prestige. Lust for recognition. In the context, it lightly points still to some wanting to elevate themselves. Earlier he said, let not many of you become teachers as you will incur a stricter judgment. He asked who among you is wise. And so there are people maybe wanting so bad to be recognized and so bad to be considered wise. And that's a, that's a strong urge and desire inside of them as well. And he may be addressing that as well. There are certain viruses that aren't visible from the outside. They eat away at you from within and cause your body to become diseased. You might be thinking of other well-known viruses out there, but today, Pastor Tom is speaking about the disease of worldliness. This is something that's not so obvious because it's rooted in your heart and what your motivations are. Some might assume worldliness is referring to what you wear or how you present yourself, but truly, it's a matter of the heart. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James, chapter 4, as he begins his message, The Cure for Worldliness. The lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God remains forever, lives forever. The believer is not to love the world. It's pretty clear. The believer is not to love the world because it's not just that it's futile or evil, it's that it is a system of evil, the world is. It's directed by evil spirits, Satan. It is uh, run through false teaching at every level of society, and it is stimulated by sinful human desire. You cannot love that and love the good Father above. There are polar opposites. They just don't go together. But here we are, we're living in the world. We're out of place. We don't belong, we don't fit in. We're in the world, but not what? Of the world. So there's this continuous tension in our lives as believers. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to the world. How can we live for God when the world around us is always trying to conform us to its values and its way of thinking, to press us into its mold? That tension obviously involves temptation, and sometimes Christians succumb to temptation. Sometimes the mindset of the world penetrates into our heads, and we wish it didn't, but it's in there. And then like that Arabian proverb, if the camel of worldliness gets its nose into the tent of the church, the whole body is soon to follow. That worldliness, when it enters into the tent of the church, so to say, it causes a lot of problems. It causes a lot of conflicts in the church, sometimes terrible conflict. The Holy Spirit understands the danger of that dynamic when worldliness gets into the church. And so the Holy Spirit moved James, the Lord's brother, to write a part of his letter to excise and remove worldliness from the thinking of believers, the way a surgeon might excise and cut out and discard, hopefully, a portion of cancerous tissue. God is working to swat at that nose that's sticking its nose under the tent of the church and bringing worldliness into it. But you and I need to cooperate. You and I need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit as He tries to remove that worldliness from us. For the less worldliness that is in our lives, the less worldliness will be in the church. Do you agree? 
And so we're going to read James. You could turn there. We're back in James chapter 4. We'll read verses 1 through 10. I don't know. We'll get to verses 1 and 2 maybe today. But it's a, it's a wonderful passage. We'll see. There's a lot to learn about worldliness there. and Maybe some of it will be surprising to you. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Worldliness is a common theme in some churches, but in other churches it's not heard too much about at all. Yet truthfully, in most churches, it is a dreadful reality that the Scriptures warn us against. You could tell at first reading of this passage that this is a strong warning to the churches against worldliness. It has some very strong exhortations at the end as to what we need to do about it. Even as believers, if we do not have our guard up, the world will press us into its mold and press into us as well. You and I are not immune. We are susceptible to contracting this disease called worldliness. And yet when I say that, worldliness is often misunderstood and it's misstated when people talk about it. They say, yeah, we're not supposed to be worldly. What's that? What does it mean to be worldly? It's been my experience, at least in conservative uh, Protestant churches, that typically when they think about worldliness or talk about worldliness, they do it in terms of kinds of entertainment that is to be avoided. So like, oh, you shouldn't listen to that or watch that. That's a worldly thing. Or that kind of music we should not listen to because that's worldly or certain kind of clothing, hip clothing that maybe might be fashionable in society and people say, that's worldly, or some kind of language, or there are many examples of what folks would say, that's worldliness. And they don't want that in the church, they want to get that out of the church, and so they talk about that as worldliness. Gambling maybe would be another example because there are a lot of things that, are, that happen bad around gambling and gamblers and betting and all the covetousness that goes along with that. In some quarters, they kind of associate any playing of cards or any kind of gaming at all as being evil and wicked. And so all of that is thrown out and is considered to be worldly. I know in the past there were certain kind of hairstyles or clothing styles that were considered worldly, and the church doesn't want their young people to, to imitate those kinds of things, you know, whether... Whether today it's, uh, it's tattoos or body piercings or long hair, different people have different ideas as to what they think is worldly and worldliness. In my days, growing up uh, in the 70s and getting saved at the end of the 70s, the thing you were not supposed to have was a beard. And that was a problem for me because I had a beard. I'm a hairy guy. And uh, the first time I went to seminary at age 22, they said, why do you have a beard? And uh, they actually, I was the first person they ever let in the seminary who had a beard because having a beard was, 
was sort of associated with the rebellious culture that grew beard and grew long hair and all the rest of that and was considered to be a worldly thing. God's Word describes worldliness, though, differently. It describes it in a way maybe most of us haven't thought about. It describes worldliness mostly as selfish motivation in our hearts, ungodly desire that's in there and comes out with different expressions in different people, uncontrolled lusts, cravings for money, cravings for power, cravings for prestige. See, it's very easy to point to someone and say, you know, they're smoking, they're chewing tobacco, they're worldly. You know, just say, that's what worldliness is. It's very easy to do that for many church people to withdraw from that and say, well, I'm not worldly, that's what worldliness is, that's not me. But really, what about us? What really is worldliness? Are we too worldly? My Greek professor, my uh, Greek professor in my Ephesians class, when he was talking to young seminarians, these are all men, they're getting ready for ministry, and he, he gave us some advice. He said, don't touch the gold, don't touch the girls, and don't touch the glory. And in just that little bit of advice, he said an awful lot, didn't he? I mean, that's stuck in my head. I know that. These are things not to go after. This is what the world is all wanting. The world wants, at least from the young man's perspective, the gold and wants the girls and wants the credit and the glory. That's what the world really is all about. Here I think James is taking his uh, sanctified finger and he's pinpointing what worldliness is. And he's saying, you know where it is? It's, it's not necessarily about what you wear, although that often is an expression of your heart, but it really is what is going on in your heart, right? And with a stunning contrast, he places worldliness in opposition to friendship with God. Some people would have a hard time with that. Can I get along with folks in the world and, and be worldly and also be a friend of God? And this passage says, no, no, you can't. You're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to decide which side you want to stand on. So he is urging us to choose friendship with God, that seems obvious, and to reject the practices and the heart and the motives of the world. We're kind of going to view worldliness as a disease here, and to cure us of worldliness as a disease, James, like a good spiritual surgeon, is going to take three actions. First, he's going to diagnose worldliness in verses 1 through 3. That's where we're going to be today, looking at what is worldliness, how it, how it is seen, how it is understood. That's in verses 1 through 3, diagnosing worldliness. And then he's going to cut worldliness out of us with a very strong rebuke in verses 4 and 5. And then last, he's going to provide the medicine, how to get rid of worldliness, have it be gone from our lives, and that is in those uh, staccato-like but very strong exhortations in verses 6 through 10. Okay, the diagnosis, verses 1 through 3, uh, cutting out worldliness, verses 4 and 5, and then providing the medicine in verses 6 through 10. Look at verse 1 and verse 2 with me again, would you? He says, and he asks really, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Let me stop there. Some have even questioned whether chapter 4 should have started here or chapter 3 should have just kept going because the topic seems very similar to what was written at the end of chapter 3. Do you remember that? You can look back at that. Talking about uh, the, the worldly wisdom that produced all these conflicts and then the real wisdom that came down from above, that was first what? It was pure. Remember that? And it was peaceable and it was gentle. And then those who were really on God's side, they worked for peace in God's church. But we know that even though that's the wisdom that comes from God, often the experience in church is the opposite. The experience is that there's a lot of conflict that goes on between even believers or believers and their leaders or leaders and their leaders or one church with another church. And there's a lot of conflict that goes on in the churches. 
And so chapter 4 is really not an entirely new chapter. It's, it's kind of the same topic, but it shifts the focus a little bit and kind of gets underneath a little bit more and looks at the heart. We're not really dealing with an entirely new topic here. So he asks this probing question at the beginning of verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts? We've already mentioned that they're there, but what's the source of them among you? What gives rise to them? The question is expressed in Greek by the word pothen, which is repeated with the word quarrel and with the word conflict, so it could be translated this way, whence comes these quarrels, whence comes these conflicts? Well, the question does look back to chapter 3. It's a diagnostic kind of question. It assumes that there is a source for the conflicts beyond the obvious, this person doesn't like this person, or something like that. It is a question that is not satisfied with saying quarreling in church is bad. We already know that. We kind of get that, right? That's not love when we quarrel in church. We got that. It's not satisfied at that level. It wants to go deeper. It wants to uncover the true ailment. Like that good surgeon, James wants to put his finger on the true problem. And so James is aiming his teaching not at what are you wearing, what does your hair look like, do you have a tattoo on? James is aiming his teaching, as all good Bible teachers and all good pastors will do, aims the teaching from the Scriptures right directly at our hearts. That's where God works. He works in your heart. Now, heart doesn't mean emotion. Only emotions are part of the heart. It also has to do with your choices, what you want. It also has to do with your thinking. The biblical term for heart doesn't really separate the thinking from the feelings. You know how sometimes we say, you know, in my head I think this way, but in my heart I feel this way. But in the biblical sense, both New Testament and Old Testament, the heart is really includes the thinking. What do you think is true and what do you value also in your, your emotions and what are you going after in your life? It involves kind of all of that. It's your, it's your life center. It's your soul inside of you. He's aiming it right at you, who you really are. That's where his teaching is being aimed. And I'm glad he's doing that because that's where real life change happens. If we change just a couple of things on the outside and say, look, I'm a good churchgoer and I'm not a worldly person, we're going to think that God's happy with us, but God's not happy with the way we think and the way we live. So he's really got to go after who we actually are on the inside, what really motivates us. And if he doesn't do that, then the kind of change is going to be superficial kind of change. Would you agree? We'll just change a few things and we'll be like all of the other false religions, right? Because they can conform to just a few things in Islam and they can conform to just a few things in Catholicism or they can conform to just a few things in Hinduism or Buddhism. There are all these rituals to do and there's certain things you wear and certain ways you stand and do that. But the heart has to be changed. I think you'd agree with that. The heart has to not be worldly. That, by the way, is what Jesus' half-brother, Jesus always did when he was preaching and changing lives in the Sermon on the Mount. If I look out at you right now, I wouldn't see any of you and I'd say, you know what? We have a worldly person that walked into our congregation. Look at how they are dressed. I don't think I would say that to any of you. I mean, I can't see all of you all that well, but I don't, I don't see any of you that would say, there's a worldly person. And yet, there's a worldly person in the pulpit. And there's a lot of worldly people in the pew, at least sometimes in our thinking. And I think you'll see that as we go through this. I think you'll see that that it's not so much about a styles of this or styles of that, but it's about where a heart really is. Now, each of these two nouns is actually a plural. It's not talking about one quarrel or one conflict, but he says conflicts and quarrels. That indicates that there's a chronic pattern of conflict in the church. Do you think that that's true? 
Now, you might not think that's true in this church. Actually, those of us in leadership know more of what's going on maybe than you do, and it's supposed to be kept that kind of a way, so there are conflicts. Sometimes you guys just solve your conflicts and bless you. You follow the Matthew 18 principle, and you have something wrong with someone. They looked at you wrong. You don't like how they they, they spoke to you. You kind of settle that between two people, and that's good. That happens, and that's going on all the time. That's part of church discipline. But I'll tell you what, in churches in general, there's a lot of conflict. And often that conflict bubbles up, and it creates splits. It's a very... Very important topic for the church. Notice that he's asking this about conflicts among you. The among you is the same phrase used back in chapter 3, verse 13, if you want to go back and check that. Who among you is wise? Who in the congregation, who in the church is wise? Well, these are conflicts inside of the church. What kind of conflicts? Well, the word, the first word is the word quarrels, polemos. Actually, uh, The word could be translated warfare, battles and wars. That's how it usually would be translated. We get our English word polemics from it, ideological battles, wars, okay? It usually had to do with some prolonged combat. In fact, in Matthew 24, when Jesus was talking about things that would happen in the end times, he says, you're going to hear of wars and what? Rumors of war. Same same word, right? You check out Revelation chapter 19, verse 19, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 34. It's used that way also there. It envisions soldiers carrying out a full military campaign, not a small little skirmish. This is big. The second term is a little bit like it, a little bit different. The term conflicts, it's page, and it refers more to strife of any kind and maybe smaller battle. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 23, it uses it for a verbal uh, Conflict. It says, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And there it is. Titus chapter 3 and verse 9 says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes. That's the same word, disputes, about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. In other words, Jews, and often a lot of Christians, loved to debate and argue and quibble and quarrel over all kinds of religious disagreements. Just get in each other's face and, and talk about this and talk about that. And it was really a lot of stuff that really didn't matter all that much, but they elevated these little things into big things. Both of these words became expressions of open antagonism. Church members at each other's throats, arguing, or worse. By the way, a lot of people say, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get back to the early church? You ever heard someone say that? If we could just be like the early church. Well, this is the early church. You know, if you had to put up with what James and Paul and John had to put up with, the word murder is in here. Did you notice that? Fighting and quarreling, murder. We're going to get to that. The modern church is not immune from quarreling. Churches split because of worldly mindset. Fights break out between leaders. Sometimes leaders are not even regenerate. They've they've been hanging on to their church for years and years and years, and someone comes along and says, let's do something different, and they're like, no. And they hang on to what they want to hang on to. Some of them are not even regenerate. And these fights break out and they split churches. Often the fight is over power and influence. I don't know how many churches I've heard of that have been split through through my years now, over 30 years as a Christian, thinking about, wow, just church after church after church, it's split, a split from a split from a split, you know, it's terrible. There's backbiting, there's jostling for position, there's mischaracterizing someone else's position, making someone, we call it demonizing, making someone seem worse than they actually are. That goes on all the time in politics, right? I mean, none of those politicians that I know are really godly people, but the way they talk about each other, you think like they're straight out of hell, you know? Are they really that bad? You know, I don't think so. 
But we demonize one another. That, why? Because then that makes our position seem so reasonable, right? Oh, they're just so bad. They said such and such. Well, maybe they had a bad day. Do you ever have a bad day? I do. Sometimes it starts with a feud. It might be two women feuding in the church, and then people gather around the two women, and now they're feuding with them, and now it becomes an open conflict, and now people start to pick sides, and then that becomes a battle, and then leaders are forced to pick sides, it seems, and there's no peace in the congregation, and soon they're like, well, we'll go our way, you go yours. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, coming to the church at Corinth, I may find you to be not what I wish. <laughs> <laughs> That's sad, isn't it? I'm going to show up in town and I'm going to visit you as a church and I'm going to be really saddened that you're not what I wish you would be and may be found by you not to be what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I think at this point in time it would be worthy just to go back and remind ourselves what's supposed to be going on in our minds and how we're supposed to be getting along. That would be verse 17 of chapter 3. Look back at that. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Let me add Philippians 1.27 to that. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, that's what brings us together, beloved, the gospel, the gospel in all of its dimensions. So James is asking for the source of these fights. And by asking this question, he's going to expose worldliness and link it to our hearts. Look, look, the answer comes next in verse 1. Look at it again. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? That's a rhetorical question. It demands a positive answer. Yes, that's the source. Don't look anywhere else. Don't psychoanalyze the whole thing. Here it is. There's the source. It's the pleasures on your insides. Bingo. Finger is placed on the malady. There's the problem. You know, you've, you've done the scanner and you can see the problem. There it is. The pleasures which wage war in your members. Pleasures. It's a word which refers to bodily appetites and gratifications. We get our word actually hedonism from it. It's a hedone, sensual pleasures. What's a hedonist? A hedonist who says life is about what I like and what I want and what I desire. Whatever feels good, do it. That's what hedonist is. It's a playboy philosophy of life. Does that sound kind of like our world? You ever gone through commercials and asked yourself, just kind of count them, check them off. How many of these commercials are appealing to my hedonistic tendencies? Because it's like, it's like 80% of them or something. It's a lot of them. Many of them are not, you know, being reasonable. They're just like, you're going to like this. This is going to feel good. You're going to enjoy this. It's all about that. Wine, women, and song. It's a commitment to the sensual party life. Are some of your friends like that? Are they committed to the sensual party life? That's because they have this philosophy. I think, though, James, given the context and the other words around it, he's probably using the term a little more broadly here and not just physical pleasures, but any strong 
desire on the inside that we have. Lust for power, it could include. Lust for prestige. Lust for recognition. In the context, it lightly points still to some wanting to elevate themselves. Earlier he said, let not many of you become teachers as you will incur a stricter judgment. He asked who among you is wise. And so there are people maybe wanting so bad to be recognized and so bad to be considered wise. And that's a, that's a strong urge and desire inside of them as well. And he may be addressing that as well. Where do these pleasures reside? Where do they come from? And his answer is in your members. He's not talking about the members of the body of Christ here. He's talking about yourself, your being individually, your members, your body parts. That's how he used it already in chapter 3 when he used the term. He's referring to the members of your body like the tongue. As Pastor Tom talked about today, there's a sense of worldliness that comes from within your heart. What are your motivations and the things you're selfishly seeking to fulfill? It's not necessarily the oh-so-obvious ways of being worldly, such as how you dress, or the hairstyle you have, or the latest trends with piercings or tattoos. No, it's what lies deep within your heart, and whether you're living for yourself or for God. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leak, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit hopebible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. No matter who you are, you're a person that God created to be a worshiper. God's intent was for you to worship Him for who He is and what He's done. But in the human and fallen nature, people have become worshipers of other things, and so their loyalty or commitment to Him falls away. Pastor Tom will relay next time how these other things that are worshipped don't last. They leave you feeling unfulfilled. There's much more to learn from the book of James, so we hope you'll tune in next time. If you'd like to listen again to today's teaching or share it with friends and family, you'll find it online at hopebible.org. Thanks for joining us on Discover Hope.